Beautiful job. Thank you. Stand with me if you would this morning. Open your Bibles to Exodus 32. If you would this morning, Exodus 32, as we continue our series, um, Man Named Moses, and take uh, his story just a step further. Exodus 32, we're going to read just the first six verses. Aren't you thankful for a God who is faithful even when we are faithless? Amen. Exodus 32, verse 1, when, when the people saw that Moses delayed coming down from the mountain, the people gathered together to Aaron and they said to him, Come make us gods that shall go before us. For as for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And Aaron said to them, Break off the golden earrings which are in your ears, in the ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people broke off their golden earrings which were in their ears, and they brought them to Aaron. He received the gold from their hand, and he fashioned it with an engraving tool, and he made a molded calf. And then they said, This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. So when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before God, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow is a feast to the Lord. And then they rose up early on the next day, and they offered burnt offerings, and they brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink, and they rose up to play. Holy Spirit, um, you are a God who is faithful to us. And as we read this text, we are reminded again of the fickle and frail and sinful nature of humanity. And yet, time and time again, when we turn away from you, you allow us to be reconciled, to be forgiven, to be restored. This, Lord, is a message of grace, God's grace for the people that turn their back on you altogether, and yet still you made a way. It's a story of a man who stood in the gap and mediated that great gulf between the holiness of God and the sinfulness of humanity. I pray, Lord, in these next few moments that you would just speak truth to our hearts uh, I ask God that you would help me to speak not a single word of my own, but only that which is from you. Lord, I pray for your anointing. I know that I don't deserve it. I can't earn it. But neither can I divide your word rightly without your anointing. So would you grant that to me? Help me to speak with clarity and with authority, with simplicity and integrity. And I pray, God, that you would supernaturally arrest the attention of everyone in this room and that our lives would become lives so grateful for the grace of God demonstrated to us. Speak now to every heart and every life in these moments that we will share together in your word. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We've got a lot of uh, tackled a large uh, section of the Moses story this morning and I'll move as quickly as I can and uh, maybe will not read all of the scriptures that I initially had, but 
We're going to work our way through this. The text before us is probably one of the most important, if not the most important, in the entire Moses saga or the Moses story. In this text and in this narrative, we are given a glimpse of the holiness of God. God's demand for justice, because he is holy, he must judge sin. We are given a very clear picture of the frailty, the sinfulness, the fickleness of human nature. And then we are shown a portrait, really a couple of portraits of the grace of God. We know that Israel has just come out of 400 years of bondage in Egypt. They've been slaves there for more than four centuries. Moses led them out of Egypt. They crossed the Red Sea in a miraculous deliverance that we talked about last Sunday. Now we come to this text, which is one of the most crucial moments of Israel's history as a nation. And it is a crucial text because it is the story of their fall as God's covenant people. They've been created a new people. They've become a new man, the people of God. And yet within just days of being becoming the people of God, they fail God miserably and they break the covenant. The fall of humanity that we read about in Genesis 1 through 3 God made Adam and he made Eve from the side of Adam and he announced that it was very good. And yet within just a short time, they had broken the covenant with God and had fallen. That story of the fall of humanity very closely parallels the story of the fall of this new people of God, the people of Israel. In Exodus 25 through 31 that precede our text, Moses is on top of the mountain and God is instructing Moses about how the people can become covenant people, how they can live with God in covenant relationship and how they can maintain that relationship. He gives Moses the law, he gives him the commandments, but all of this is focused on how God's people can stay in covenant relationship with him. Before God is even done speaking with Moses, the people have already broken covenant and they have rebelled. It's interesting if we go back to Exodus 24, we find that prior to Moses scaling the mountain, the people had already committed to a covenant with God. As a matter of fact, we read in Exodus 24 and verse 3, Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the judgments. And they answered with one voice. They were unified and said, all the words which the Lord has said, we will do. They'd signed on. We're going to be the covenant people of God and we are glad to do it. And we commit ourselves to that covenant. So Moses scaled the mountain to receive the tablets, to receive the Torah, the law, so that he could deliver it to the people so that they know what it would look like to maintain that relationship. And it's while he is on the mountain, here it is, that the story of Israel's failure begins. There's three movements in this message this morning. The first we'll move through very quickly, but it begins with Israel asserting its own independence. While Moses is on the mountain for 40 days, the people grow impatient. 
They have waited now for a while and they're tired of waiting. He's been up there too long. The text says when they saw that Moses had delayed, the Hebrew word for delay speaks of being shamefully lost. They felt like maybe he had lost his way and wasn't even going to return to them. It's interesting that because on one hand, Moses has been indispensable to them. They didn't want to talk to God. They wanted Moses to do all the talking to God for them. But now they have decided that maybe he isn't their man. They could go on without him because he is delayed from coming down the mountain. So because of his delay, they ask Aaron to make gods, Elohim, plural, to make gods to go before them. It is likely or at least plausible that they really were not trying to replace Yahweh, but they were trying to replace Moses. The calf that they would make would become the link between God and them instead of Moses, who had delayed too long on top of the mountain. This image would be the way that they would navigate their relationship with God. It would be the way that they would draw near to God. And so Aaron makes the calf. Aaron says, bring me your golden earrings from your sons, your daughters, your wives. Bring them all to me, free will offering, and I will make the image that you have asked me to make. What is interesting is just a few chapters before, the people had been asked to bring free will offerings to make the tabernacle. The tabernacle was going to be the guarantee of God's presence in their midst. And now they are bringing free will offerings to make an idol that would be that which causes them to lose the presence of God in their midst. So Aaron carves out with an engraving tool and the gold that has been melted in the fire. He carves out the golden calf and then he places an altar in front of it. Question that some would ask, do the people see the calf as a replacement for Yahweh? We're not certain, but it seems that Aaron now is trying to do damage control. And so he places an altar in front of the calf, trying to somehow mix this calf with the worship of Yahweh. And Then we come to what we call the Feast of Mockery. With the calf and the altar in front of them, the people then rose up early the next day. They offered their burnt offerings and their peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink. And they rose up to play. Israel has asserted its own independence, their own autonomy. Just like Adam and Eve, the first humanity had said, we'll do our own thing. And now they do their own thing and they will lose the the immediacy, the immediacy of God's presence. Which moves us to the second movement, and we'll spend a little more time here, and that is because of their asserting their autonomy, God's presence now is placed in jeopardy. Moses and God are up on top of the mountain, and God knows what is going on below. And we see a picture of his wrath. The Bible says, the Lord said to Moses, go, get down. For your people, whom you brought out of the land of Egypt, they corrupted themselves. They've turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them, and they've made a molded calf, and they've worshipped it, and they've sacrificed to it. And they've said, this is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. The Lord said to Moses, I've seen this people, and indeed it is a stiff-necked people. 
Now, therefore, leave me alone, God says to Moses. Watch this. God says, leave me alone. Just go away. Let my wrath burn hot against them so that I may consume them. Moses, I'll make of you a great nation. So God says to Moses, get down. There's no reason to stay up here on top of the mountain and hear more instruction about the covenant because it's already messed up. They broke it. Before I even had a chance to deliver it to them in hard copy form, they have broken the covenant. Get down and go down to the bottom of the mountain. God is angry. He is ready to consume these rebellious Israelites. And he says to Moses, I'll just start new with you. I'll just make a great nation of you. I'm not sure that we often see this, but I want you to note that God seems to hint of his grace and reveal a loophole to Moses even here. He didn't say, Moses, I forbid you to stay here. He didn't say, Moses, I'm going to make you go there. I'm going to lift you up and put you there. He says, Moses, go get down. Leave me alone so that my anger may burn hot against them and I may consume them and I will make of you a great nation. But notice, Moses was given a chance to refuse. Moses could have gone down immediately and said, Okay, God's going to make a nation of me and he's going to wipe you out. In fact, the psalmist said in Psalm 106, Therefore God said that he would destroy them had not Moses, his chosen one, stood before him in the breach to turn away his wrath, lest he destroy them. My question to you is this. What if Moses does not leave God alone? God said, leave me alone. Let my wrath burn hot. But what if Moses does not leave him alone? What if instead he sees that loophole and he takes it? What if instead he intercedes? Folks, that's exactly what Moses does. Instead of leaving God alone, he interceded. Let me ask you a question this morning. How many are glad that Jesus did not turn down the offer to come and mediate for us? Are you thankful for that? He didn't leave God alone to pour out his wrath on us. Instead, he came and stood in the gap and took God's wrath for us. So Moses, taking the hint, intercedes. And he pleads with the Lord his God. And he said, Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people? That you brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand. Don't let the Egyptians speak and say, he brought them out to harm them, to kill them in the mountains and to consume them. And in verse 13, he says, remember Abraham and Isaac and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by yourself and said to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven. And all that I have spoken, I give to your descendants and they shall inherit it forever. So Moses is talking to God. He's interceding. We talk about this often. It's, you've heard other preachers say it. It is kind of humorous. But you will notice in this whole story that when Moses is talking to God, he is calling Israel. He's saying to God and he's saying, your people. 
And every time God is talking to Moses about Israel, God is saying to Moses, they are your people. Nobody wanted to claim the Israelites at this point. I won't tell you that a pastor ever feels that way, but you can make your own, draw your own conclusions with that. But Moses and God are nobody wants them. And so Moses says to God, God says to Moses, first of all, I'm going to destroy them. And then Moses says to God, your people that you brought out. Then God says in verse 7, they are your people. Moses says, God, don't, don't destroy them. If you destroy them, the Egyptians are going to say, we knew it. That was God's plan all the time to lure them out of the wilderness and wham, destroy them. And besides that, Moses said, what about the covenant that you made to Abraham and to Isaac and Jacob and promised them that their seed would be as the stars of the sky and the sand of the sea? And so when he concluded, the Bible says that God relented. The Hebrew word is not calm. It means to sigh briefly, to sigh strongly. To be sorry in a favorable sense. To show pity or to console. And so instead of this wrath that is boiling, there is a consolation. There is a sigh. There is pity. We will pick that back up in just a few moments. So God has Moses intercede for him. He relents, decides not to destroy them. And now Moses says, I'm going to go down the mountain and see what's going on. And he comes and he confronts Israel's sin. Moses comes down the mountain, possibly didn't know how bad it was. Joshua meets him about halfway down, and they're going to walk the rest of the way together. And Joshua hears the sound, and he says, it sounds like warfare to me. Moses says, that's not warfare, that's a party going on. They're singing and dancing. There's some kind of ungodliness going on. And so he comes to the bottom of the mountain, and the anger of Moses waxes great. He sees the debauchery that's going on, and... There's no reason for these covenant tablets any longer because they have broken the covenant and he slams the tablets down and they are, they are broken in two. And then Moses confronts Aaron. Aaron's standing there wide-eyed. My brother's mad. He's angry. The tablets have been broken and Moses says to Aaron, it's interesting, he tries to let Aaron off the hook. What did this people do to you? that you have brought so great a set upon them. And so Aaron thought, well, if my brother's going to cut me a little slack, I'll go with that excuse. And Aaron said, don't let the anger of my Lord become hot. You know the people that they are set on evil. And then he gives this unbelievable excuse. He said, they said they wanted a God. I said, bring me your earrings. I threw it in the fire and out comes this calf. He almost takes no responsibility for it at all. One of the poorest excuses given in Scripture Moses first lays the blame on the people and Aaron sides with him, giving the the ridiculous explanation. Aaron will later become commissioned as a priest. A reminder to us that those who are really worth their value to the kingdom are those not who are bent by the call of the people, but have their ears tuned to the voice of God. Aaron failed and listened to the people instead of God. Moses is standing in front of the people and he orders the judgment of the people. We'll not take time to read this. We'll put the the text on the screen. But Moses says, whoever is on the Lord's side, you come now. The entire tribe of Levi came and stood with Moses. He said, draw your sword. And Moses sent the Levites 
through the camp. And all those who had sinned, all those who had jumped on board and kind of pushed the way toward this sin were destroyed. About one half of one percent of the nation was killed that day. A reminder, look right here and listen to me. Sin is heinous. Sin is an affront against God and judgment is always necessary. And it was that day that the Levites were set apart and the judgment of that sin was dealt with. And then Moses continues to intercede for his people. As Moses intercedes, he prays to God, God, blood me out. God, if you're going to wipe them out, wipe me out also. But God responded to him and said, no, we're not... We're not going to wipe you out, Moses. He said, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot him out of my book. Now, therefore, go lead the people to the place which I have spoken to you. And notice this. Please watch this. God says, I will send my angel before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit for punishment, I will visit punishment upon them for their sin. Moses said, God just blot me out. And God said, no, I'm not going to blot you out. You did. It wasn't you. I'm going to blot out those who have sinned against me. Go ahead and go, Moses. You lead the people. And notice now, please, I want you to get this. A few chapters before, they are giving free will offerings to make a tabernacle so the tabernacle can be with them in the midst of the camp and God's presence can go with them always. And now God says, I'm not going with you. But an angel will go before you. God said, go without me. The Lord said to Moses, depart, go up from here. You and the people that you brought out of the land. Verse 2, and I'll send my angel before you and I will drive out the Canaanites. And all that dwell there, go up to a land flowing with milk and honey. And look at what God says. Very honestly, I'll not go up in your midst. Lest I consume you on the way. For you are a stiff-necked people. Everybody look right here for just a moment. We don't like to read texts like that. Not in 2018 in Western America, the church. We don't, in our nice buildings, we don't like to read texts like this. But listen to me. Sin is a grievous thing to God. Say amen if you believe that. We just candy-coated, oh, it's our struggle, it's our difficulty. Sin is an affront to God. And God said, I'm going to send my angel with you, so angry with you that I may destroy you along the way. As we move on in the story, um, God still keeps his promise. He calls them Moses' people. He's not interested in calling them his own. In chapters 25 through 31, he has been giving them tabernacle instructions for his presence to dwell in their midst. Look right here. It looks like that's coming to an end. God says, I'm not going with you. An angel's going to go. I'm not going with you. And the people mourn. When the people heard this, when they heard this bad news, they mourned. And no one put on his ornaments. Before I get to the third movement, I, I, I need to hurry, but I do want to say... May we never as a church get to the place where we can figure out how to do church without the presence of God. 
that we never get to the place where we think we can do this. We've got it down. We know how to sing three songs and do five minutes of prayer and have the choir sing and the pastor preach and the notes on the screen and have good services in a nice, comfortable building, and it's all good. May we never get to the point that it does not break our heart if we don't sense the presence of God. Say amen if you believe that. And God said, um, you're going to go, but I'm not going to go with you. Moves us to the third, or takes us to the third movement. I just want you to know this is the lowest part in Israel's history, the lowest moment up to this time as they have broken the covenant with God. But in the midst of all of that, God's grace abounds. How many are thankful that where sin abounds, God's grace does much more abound? Aren't you thankful for that? Moses stays close to God. I don't have time to read you all of these, but I am going to read you this one. Moses took his tent. Please watch this. I think we read through these scriptures and we don't really see what's going on and we have this wrong picture of what took place. They were supposed to have a tabernacle in their midst. But they've sinned. And God said, I'm not even going with you. Moses takes his tent and he pitches it outside the camp, far from the camp, and he calls it the tabernacle of meeting. came to pass that everyone who sought the Lord went out to the tabernacle of meeting, which was outside the camp, So it was whenever Moses went out to the tabernacle, all the people rose and each man stood at his tent door and watched Moses until he'd gone into the tabernacle. It came to pass when Moses entered the tabernacle that the pillar of cloud descended and stood at the door of the tabernacle and the Lord talked with Moses. All the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the tabernacle door and all the people rose and worshiped each man in his tent door. So the Lord spoke to Moses face to face. Keep in mind, face to face, but mitigated by a cloud spoke face to face as a man speaks to his friend and he would return to the camp. But his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, did not depart from the tabernacle. I want you to get this because if you don't, the rest of this is not going to make any sense. The tabernacle plans have been suspended. It's outside the camp and it's one tent. It's a tent that only Moses goes into. The people can bring a need to Moses, and then Moses will go into the tent, and the people will watch. Israel is not totally abandoned by God. But Israel's relationship with God is hanging on the thread of Moses' mediation. But Moses continues to intercede. He goes into that tent, and he talks to God, and we're not told exactly how long. But one day, Moses, as he is talking to God finds that his intercession is successful. And he says to the Lord, Lord, you say to me, bring this people up. But I don't know who it is that you're going to send with us. God, you've said to me, I know you by your name and I found grace in your sight. I pray if I really have found grace in your sight and you really consider this nation your people, that you will go with us. We'll find grace in your sight. And he said, my presence will go with you. I will give you rest. And Moses said what I pray we would all say, if your presence doesn't go with us, don't send us up. We can't do this without you. Moses finally broaches the subject with God. God, we need your presence. And God says, I'll go with you. And then Moses desires even more. Okay, God, you've agreed to go with us. 
I think I'm going to ask you one more thing. And he says, God, I want you to show me your glory. Moses now has a taste of how difficult this is going to be. These people are going to complain a lot. They're going to be in the wilderness. It's going to be rough. There's going to be difficult times. And Moses knows he needs the glory of God if he is going to survive the wilderness. Folks, this is a difficult world. You all understand this. This is a hard place right now. We need to know and experience the presence of God and know his glory if we're going to navigate these places. And Moses says, God, I want to see your glory. So God reveals himself to Moses. He says, Moses, I'm going to make my goodness pass before you. I'm going to proclaim the name of the Lord to you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But Moses, you can't see my face. I've been mitigating it with a cloud. You cannot see my face because no one can and live. So God said, here's a place by me. Stand on the rock and it will be that my glory will pass by and I'll put you in the cleft of the rock and I'll cover you with my hand while I pass by and I will take away my hand and you'll see my backside, but my face shall not be seen. I love that little line, I will be gracious and have compassion on whom I will. Victor Hamilton says this is not primarily to underscore divine sovereignty as if God and God alone arbitrates who is in the kingdom and who misses it. This is God's willingness to forgive a sinful people and accompany them on their further journey. God says, I'll have compassion on them. I'll forgive them. And I will accompany them on their journey. So the intercession of Moses restores the broken relationship between Israel and God. Israel broke the covenant and the relationship is broken. Now there must be a renewal of that covenant. Everybody look right here. I'm going to ask you to think with me for just a moment. Remember when they first made the covenant at Sinai? And everyone experienced, not close up, but everyone experienced the thundering and the lightning and the cloud and the smoke as they stood at the mountain. This is what theologians call a theophany. It is a, it is a, a manifestation of God's presence. And all of Israel experienced it when the covenant was first made. But now, the renewal of the covenant, Israel will not experience it Only Moses, as God's glory passes by. Because of their sin, there will be a private theophany only for Moses. And there will be a reduced immediacy of revelation. It will only come now through Moses. Can I just say to you, listen closely, hear this. Sin, even when it is forgiven, still carries consequences. Say amen if you believe that. Let me try that again. Are you hearing me this morning? Sin, even when it's forgiven, carries consequences. God's presence overcame Moses. Chapter 34, verses 5 through 7, God's presence passes by. Moses worships. He bows his head to the ground, and then he intercedes again. If I have now found grace in your sight, O Lord, let my Lord, I I pray, go among us. Even though we are a stiff-necked people. And pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us as your inheritance. I I shouldn't even laugh at this prayer, but this prayer is like a prayer of a realist who finally says, 
okay, God, we're going to quit faking this thing. We are a stiff-necked bunch. We are a trouble. We are a lot to handle. But would you please go with us even though we're a mess? Anybody ever pray a prayer like that to God? That's what Moses is praying. Would you just go with us? I'm not going to try to fool you and tell you we're better than we are. I'm just asking for your grace. Would you go with us even though we are a stiff-necked people? And God responds, I'll make a covenant with you. I'll do marvels such as not been done in all the earth, nor in any nation, and all the people among you shall see the work of the Lord. It's an awesome thing that I will do with you. He then calls them and will not take time to read it to renewed obedience. He unpacks the word and the law to them. And then Moses reflects the glory of God. When Moses comes down from Mount Sinai, with the two tablets with him in his hand. When he comes down from the mountain, he didn't even know that the skin of his face shone while he talked with him. Please watch this. At the beginning of the story, Moses' absence was the story. But now his presence is the story because he is reflecting the glory of God. His absence cost them God's presence at the beginning of Exodus 32. Now his presence mediates God's presence. Moses would speak to them and when he finished speaking, he would place the veil over him and he became the mediator to God's people. Let me uh, bring this to a close with two thoughts. And Pastor Clayton, if you want to go ahead and come. This narrative, and it's a long story, I've told you the story as quickly as I can, hoping that we could put the pieces together. The story is really pretty simple. Let me just summarize it. Moses is up on the mountain getting instructions about how to maintain covenant relationship with God, and all the while the people are down below breaking the covenant with God. He gets to the bottom of the mountain. The covenant is broken. He slams down the tablets. It was only a metaphor of what's on. They've already broken the covenant. When he breaks the tablets, it's only breaking that which they have already broken in their hearts. God's ready to destroy them and wipe them out. But Moses says, God, don't do that. Wipe me out if you're going to wipe them out. God says, okay, I won't wipe them out, but I'm not going to go with you. The only sense of my presence that you're going to experience or they're going to experience is through you outside the camp. And Moses continues to intercede and finally says, God, listen, show me your glory. And when he shows him his glory, um, when he passes by, God reveals his name to Moses, God of loving kindness, a God who forgives iniquity a God of eternal mercy. Moses picked up on that and said, God, we're a mess. We are a stiff-necked people. But I heard you declare your name. You are a God of loving kindness. You show mercy. You forgive iniquity. Would you just go with us even though we are stiff-necked and rebellious? The narrative reveals two insights regarding grace. Why don't you stand with me? Let me give you these two while you're standing, and then we're going to close. Try to hold steady if you could, please. 
This is a long statement, but it's really pretty simple, and I want to make sure you get it. First insight is this. God's grace in this story demonstrated by his relenting from his plan to destroy those who break his covenant does not mean that the sin would go unpunished. But instead it means that the recipient of divine wrath would be transferred from the offender to the mediator. Do you know that when Moses went back up on the mountain, the first time he went up, God wrote with his finger. The second time he had to chisel out the law with his own hand. Moses risked the life, his own life on the mountain with a God whose wrath was ready to be poured out. Moses ends up losing his chance to enter the promised land, except on the other side of the resurrection. Moses paid quite a price. I want you to notice the first part of that line, God's grace that's demonstrated by relenting from destroying them doesn't mean that he doesn't punish the sin. It just means that the sin is transferred from the offender to the mediator. Please get this. Look right here and get this. We all have sinned, haven't we, and come short of the glory of God. How many believe you have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God? And it doesn't mean because you're forgiven. How many are forgiven this morning? How many are forgiven? Doesn't mean that God overlooked sin. It didn't mean that God winked at it and said, oh, it's no big deal. Instead, it means that the wrath of God, the judgment of God was transferred from the offender to the mediator. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. How many are grateful that our judgment got transferred to the mediator, Jesus Christ, instead of us? What, what good news? That's the gospel. That's what we can tell people. Jesus took God's wrath for you. Let me tell you this story real quickly. Um, 1957, August of 1957, four climbers, two Italians, two Germans, climbing the 6,000-foot vertical north face in the Swiss Alps. The two German climbers disappeared, never again to be seen. The two Italian climbers, exhausted and dying, were stuck on two narrow ledges 1,000 feet below the summit. The Swiss Alpine Club forbade anyone to try to make a rescue attempt but there was a group of private Swiss climbers who decided to launch a private rescue effort. And so they lowered one of their own climbers. His name was Alfred Hellepart. They, they lowered him down that 6,000 foot north face and they suspended Hellepart on a cable a fraction of an inch thick as they lowered him into the abyss. And as he describes the story, it was misty and it was foggy. And he said before long, he could no longer see those who were holding on to the end of that cable. They went out of sight and all he could see was this abyss. It was so that the, the mist and the, the fog was so thick that he couldn't even see the cable that was holding him. And he said how awful it was as he descended into that abyss. But he actually said this, the sole relief from terror was my mission to save the climbers below. There is in that story a picture of the word becoming flesh. God so loving the world that he sent his only begotten son, he descended into 
humanity, sinful, awful, evil humanity, disconnected from the Father to the point that he would say on the cross, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And yet the writer of Hebrews says it was the joy set before him that made him endure the cross. That's what Jesus did for us. So don't ever think that that sin that seems unpunished means that God didn't punish it. God's grace doesn't mean no punishment. It means Jesus took it for us. And secondly, God's grace is demonstrated to us by revealing God's presence to us. Even when all of our answers are not found. We all like answers. We all want to figure things out. Moses wanted answers. God, show me your glory. Let me, let me know for sure what's going on. Let me see you in all of your fullness. I want to know everything. I want to have all the answers. And God said, I'm going to put you in the cleft of the rock. I'm going to put my hand over you. You are not going to see all the answers. But you're going to feel my presence. And you're going to know that I'm with you. There's a story told of a uh, Harvard professor who in his early days of preaching preached in Louisiana back during the time of the depression it was a ba- that area had very little electricity he preached in a small little rural church it was a, a a rural church that had just a little bit of electricity and in that church there was one light bulb hanging from the ceiling and he preached that just a young guy and he's preaching and he's preaching away and uh, the electricity went off and It was a night service, and all of a sudden it was dark in the room. And uh, he was a young guy, didn't know what to do. I don't know how many of you remember the day that we lost our power. I didn't know what to do either. But this is just a dark room, and there's one little light bulb hanging from the ceiling. So he stopped, and he kind of stammered around and didn't know what to do. And finally an elder in the back said, Preach on, preacher. We can still see Jesus in the dark. And we can. How many believe that? We can still see him in the dark. Sometimes he doesn't reveal everything to us, but his presence is still with us. Would you bow your heads with me? Father, thank you for your grace that's demonstrated to us. First of all, in the giving of yourself, taking as our mediator, as our intercessor, taking the judgment and the penalty of our sin for us. We thank you for that. And thank you for your grace demonstrated to us. And when we don't have all the answers you still will reveal your presence to us. And we can know, God, that you are walking with us. And I pray, God, for everyone in this room, there may be those today who have never committed their life to the Lordship of Jesus. They've never said, God, I commit my life to you. I believe that you died on the cross for my sins. I pray, Lord, today that they would receive Jesus as Lord and Savior. For those, Lord, who may feel like the room is dark, their world is dark, Their life is dark. I pray that they'll still see you in the midst of that darkness. Your presence will be so real to them. With your heads bowed for just a moment this morning, and I'm not going to keep you long, but if you're here today and you've never invited Jesus Christ to be the Lord of your life, if you you would say today, Pastor, if Jesus were to come today, my heart would not be ready to meet him. I am not 
I am not serving him, but I want to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that I'm right with him. I believe that he paid for my sin, and now I want to receive that by faith in my life. I want to follow Jesus. Anyone that would just slip up a hand and say, pray for me. I want to surrender my life to the Lordship of Jesus. Anyone in this room? Anyone in this room? Let me ask you a second question then. If you're here today with heads still bowed and you say, I'm walking in a dark place. But I know that the grace of God is demonstrated to me in that even in my dark place, when I don't have all the answers, God's presence can be near to me. And I need to feel that presence in my darkness this morning. Anybody slip up a hand right where you're at and say, would you pray for me? There are several hands this morning. Others that would slip up a hand and say, pray for me. I'm walking in one of those places this morning. Thank you. Really all over the place. I'm going to ask our staff to come if they would, please. I'm going to sing this chorus. And if you would like somebody to pray with you, maybe you want to just come and kneel, respond your own way to the message, you can do that. We won't bother you if you come and kneel at the altar or the steps. But if you want somebody to pray with you, many hands went up. We'd like to take just a minute or two and do that and pray with you as you walk in this darkness that you would sense the presence of God. So if you raised your hand or you didn't but should have want somebody to pray with you, would you step out as we sing this morning?